Hello there, and welcome to the series finale of this fourth series of What You May Have Mythed. It seems like yesterday when we were just getting started with the Greek creation story, but here we are, ten weeks later, with the exact opposite. You will remember that last week we sank our teeth into the first part of a story from Norse mythology, and that it focused on the death of Balder, as planned by Loki. So this week, we conclude that story with one of the most famous myths the world has ever seen, Ragnarok. fair to say that this is one of the most well-known legends to come out of Scandinavia, given its propensity to appear in films, television shows, books, and all forms of other media. And why not? It's all about a climactic battle between gods and monsters, a blockbuster riddled with action and destruction, and worthy of a series finale, I reckon. But before we jump in, remember that although this series is finishing, there are going to be shorter episodes coming out on a weekly basis as of next week. And if there is a particular myth, legend, or historical story you would like to hear, then drop me a message on TikTok or Instagram, or you can email me at themythspodcast at gmail.com. And if you could hit that download button too, that helps me get a better idea of how many of you lovely lot are out there. Okay, now that that is all said and done, let us delve once more into Norse mythology. Part 6 the Punishment of Loki After the death of Balder, Loki decided to never enter the presence of the Aesir again. He knew well enough that what he had done was beyond forgivable, and that the most important thing for him to do now would be to use all his cunning and vigilance to hide himself from the eyes of those whom he had distressed, whilst also escaping the punishment he had brought upon himself. The world is large, and I am very cunning said Loki to himself as he turned his back upon Asgard and wandered out into Midgard. There is no end to the thick woods and no measure for the deep waters. Neither is there any possibility of counting the various forms under which I shall disguise myself. Allfather will never be able to find me. I have no cause to fear. But though Loki repeated this over and over again to himself, he was afraid. He wandered far into the thick woods and covered himself with the deep waters. He climbed to the tops of misty hills and crouched in the dark hollow of caves. But above the wood and through the water and down into the darkness, a single ray of calm, clear light seemed always to follow him, and he knew that it came from the eye of Allfather who was watching him from the air throne. Then he tried to escape the judging eye by disguising himself under various shapes. Sometimes he was an eagle on a lonely mountain crag. Sometimes he hid himself as one among a troop of timid reindeer. Sometimes he lay in the nest of a wood pigeon. Sometimes he swam, a bright spotted fish in the sea. But wherever he was, among living creatures or alone with dead nature, everything seemed to know him, and to find some voice in which to say, You are Loki, 
and you have killed Balder. Air, earth, or water, there was no rest for him anywhere. Tired at last of seeking what he could nowhere find, Loki built himself a house by the side of a narrow, glittering river, which, at a lower point, flashed down from a high rock into the sea below. He took care that his house should have four doors in it, that he might look out on every side and catch the first glimpse of the Aesir when they came, as he knew they would come, to take him away. Here his wife Saguna and his two sons, Ali and Nari, came to live with him. Saguna was a kind woman, weirdly, far too good and kind for Loki. She was so kind, though, that she felt sorry for him now that she saw he was in great fear, and that every living thing had turned against him, and she would have hidden him from the just anger of the Aesir if she could. But the two sons cared little about their father's dread and danger. They spent all their time arguing with one another, and their loud, angry voices sounding above the waterfall would quickly have betrayed the hiding place, even if Allfather's piercing eye had not already discovered it. If only the children would be quiet, Saguna used to say anxiously every day. But Loki said nothing. He was beginning to know by experience that there was that about his children that could never be kept quiet or hidden away. At last, one day, when he was sitting in the middle of his house, looking alternately out of all the four doors, and amusing himself as well as he could by making a fishing net, he spied in the distance the whole company of the Aesir approaching his house. The sight of them coming all together, beautiful and noble and free, pierced Loki with a pang that was worse than death. He rose without daring to look again, threw his net on a fire that burned on the floor, and, abandoning his wife and sons and rushing to the side of the little river, he turned himself into a salmon, swam down to the deepest, stillest pool at the bottom, and hid himself between two stones. The Aesir entered the house and looked all round in vain for Loki, till Kvasir, one of Odin's sons, famous for his keen sight, spied out the remains of the fishing net in the fire. Odin then realised that there was a river near, and that it was there where Loki must have hidden himself. He ordered his sons to make a fresh net and to cast it into the water and drag out whatever living things they could find there. It was done as he desired. Thor, because he was mighty, held one end of the net, and all the rest of the Aesir drew the other through the water. When they pulled it up the first time, however, it was empty, and they would have gone away disappointed had not Kvasir, looking earnestly at the meshes of the net, discovered that something living had certainly touched them. They then added a weight to the net, and threw it with such force that it reached the bottom of the river and dragged up the stones in the pool. Loki now saw the danger he was in of being caught in the net, and, as there was no other way of escape, he rose to the surface, swam down the river as quickly as he could, and leapt over the net into the waterfall. He swam and leapt quickly as a flash of lightning, but not so quickly that the Aesir saw him, knew him through his disguise, and resolved that he should no longer escape them. They divided into two groups. Thor, because he was mighty, waded down the river to the waterfall whilst the other Aesir stood in a group below. Loki swam backwards and forwards between them. Now he thought he would dart out into the sea, and now he would spring over the net back again into the river. This last seemed the readiest way of escape, and with the greatest speed he attempted it. But Thor, because he was mighty, was watching him and as soon as Loki leapt out of the water, he stretched out his hand and caught him while he was turning and twisting in the air. 
Loki wriggled his slippery, slimy length through Thor's fingers, but the Thunderer grasped him tightly by the tail, and holding him in this manner, waded to the shore. There Odin and the other Aesir met him, and at Odin's first searching look, Loki was obliged to drop his disguise, and, cowering and frightened, to stand in his proper shape before the assembled lords. One by one they turned their faces from him, for, in looking at him, they seemed to see over again the death of Balder the Beloved. There were high rocks looking over the sea not far from Loki's house. One of these, higher than the rest, had four protruding stones, and to these the Aesir resolved to bind Loki in such a manner that he should never again be able to torment the inhabitants of the world. Thor, because he was mighty, proposed to return to Asgard to bring a chain with which to bind the prisoner, but Odin assured him that he had no need to take such a journey. Loki has already forged for himself a chain stronger than any you can make. While we have been occupied in catching him, his two sons, Ali and Nari, transformed into wolves by their evil passions, they have fought and destroyed each other. With their sinews we must make a chain to bind their father, and from that he can never escape. It was done as Odin said. A rope was made of the dead wolf's sinews, and, as soon as it touched Loki's body, it turned into bands of iron and bound him immovably to the rock. Secured in this manner, the Aesir left him. But his punishment did not end here. A snake, whose fangs dropped venom, glided to the top of the rock and leaned his head over to peer at Loki. The eyes of the two met and fixed each other. The serpent could never move away afterwards. But every moment a burning drop from his tongue fell down on Loki's shuddering face. No one pitied Loki, all believing this was a fit punishment for his crimes. All except one. His kind wife ever afterwards stood beside him and held a cup over his head to catch the poison. But when the cup was full, she had to turn away to empty it, and drops of poison fell again on Loki's face. He shuddered and shrank from it, and the whole earth trembled. And so he will lie there until Ragnarok comes. Part 7 The Twilight of the Gods Since the day that Balder died, no one had walked in the bright halls of Broadblink. No one had even stepped through the expanded gates. Instead of undimmed brightness, a soft, luminous mist now hung over the palace of the dead god, and the Aesir whispered to one another that it was haunted by wild dreams. "'I have seen them,' Freya used to say. "'I have seen them float in at sunset through the palace windows and the open doors. Every evening I can trace their slight forms through the rosy mist. And I know that those dreams are wild and strange from the shuddering that I feel when I look at them, or if they ever glance at me.' So the Aesir never went into Broadblink, and though they did not think much about the dreams, they never went there either. But one day it happened that Odin stood in the opening of the palace gates at sunset. The evening was clear and calm, and he stood watching the western sky until its crimson faded into soft blue-grey. Then the colours of the flowers began to mix with one another. Only the tall white and yellow blossoms stood out alone. The distance became more dim. It was twilight, and there was silence over the earth whilst the night and the evening drew near to one another. 
Then a young dream came floating through the gates into Broadblink. Her sisters were already there, but she had only just been born. And as she passed Odin she touched him with a light hand and drew him along with her into the palace. She led him into the same hall in which Balder had dreamed, and there Odin saw the night sky above him and the broad branches of Yggdrasil swaying in the breeze. The Norns, the gardeners of Yggdrasil, stood under the great ash. The golden threads had dropped from their fingers, and Urd and Vodandi stood one on each side of Skuld, who was still veiled. For a long time the three stood motionless, but at length Urd and Vodandi raised each a cold hand and lifted the veil slowly from Skuld's face. Odin looked breathlessly within the veil, and the eyes of Skuld dilated as he looked, grew larger and larger, melted into one another, and at last expanded into boundless space. In the midst of space lay the world, with its long shores and vast oceans, ice mountains and green plains. Asgard in the midst, with Midgard all round, then the wide sea, and far off the frost-bound shores of Jotunheim. Sometimes there was night and sometimes day. Summer and winter gave place to one another, and Odin watched the seasons as they changed, rejoiced in the sunshine, and looked calmly over the night. But at last, during one sunrise, a wolf came out of Yarnvid and began to howl at the sun. The sun did not seem to hear him, but walked majestically up the sky to her midday point. Then the wolf, called Skoll, began to run after her and chased her down the sky again to the low west. There the sun opened her bright eyes wide and turned round at bay. But the wolf came close up to her and opened his mouth and swallowed her up. The earth shuddered and the moon rose. Another wolf, Hattie, was waiting for the moon with wide jaws open, and while yet pale and young, he too was devoured. The earth shuddered again. It was covered with cold and darkness, while frost and snow came driving from the four corners of heaven. Winter and night, winter and night, there was now nothing but winter. A dauntless eagle sat upon the height of the giantess rock and began to strike his harp. Then a light red cock crowed over the birdwood. A gold-combed cock crowed over Asgard, and over Helheim a cock of sooty red. From a long way underground, Garm began to howl and at last Fenrir broke loose from his rock prison and ran forth over the whole earth. Then brother fought with brother, and war had no bounds. A hard age was that, an axe age, a sword age, shields oft cleft in twain, a storm age, a wolf age, ere the earth met its doom. Confusion rioted in the darkness. At length Heimdall ran up Bifrost and blew his guile a horn, whose sound went out into all worlds, and Yggdrasil, the mighty ash, was shaken from its roots to its summit. After this Odin saw himself ride forth from Asgard to consult Mimir at the Well of Wisdom. Whilst he was there, Jormungand turned mightily in his place and began to plough through the ocean, which caused it to swell over every shore, so that the world was covered with water to the base of its hills. Then the ship Naglfar was seen coming over the sea with its prow from the east, and the great Hrim was the steersman. All Jotunheim resounded, and the dwarves stood moaning before their stony doors. 
Then the heaven was cleft in two, and a flood of light streamed down upon the dark earth. The sons of Muspel, the sons of fire, rode through the breach, and at the head of them rode Surtur, their leader, before and behind whom fire raged, and whose sword shone brighter than the sun. He led his flaming warriors from heaven to earth over Bifrost, and the tremulous bridge broke in pieces beneath their feet. Then the earth shuddered again. Even giantesses stumbled, and men trod the way to Helheim in such crowds that Garm was sated with their blood. He broke loose and came up to earth to look upon the living. Confusion reigned, and Odin saw himself at the head of all the Aesir, ride over the top of the mountains to Vigrid, the high, wide battlefield, where the giants were already assembled, headed by Fenrir, Garm, Jormungand, and Loki. Surtur was there too, commanding the Sons of Fire, whom he had drawn up in several shining bands on a distant part of the plain. Then the great battle began in earnest. First, Odin rode against Fenrir, who came on, opening his enormous mouth. The lower jaw reached the earth, the upper one to heaven, and would have reached further had there been space to allow it. The fight between Odin and Fenrir did not last long. Fenrir opened his maw and devoured the Aesir's father. Seeing this, Vidar stepped forward and putting his foot on Fenrir's lower jaw, with his hand he seized the other and tore the wolf in two. In the meantime, Tyr and Garm had been fighting until they had killed each other. Heimdall slew Loki, and Loki slew Heimdall. Frey met Surtur in battle and was killed by him. Many terrible blows were exchanged before Frey fell, but Surtur's sword outshone the sun and landed the killing blow. Thor, because he was mighty, went forth against Jormungand. The strong thunderer raised his arm. He feared no evil. He flung Mjolnir at the monster serpent's head. Jormungandr was thrown up into the air and fell back down to earth, dead. A stream of venom poured forth from his nostrils as he died. Thor fell back nine paces from the strength of his own blow. He bowed his head to earth and was choked in the poisonous flood. So the monster serpent was killed by the strong thunderer's hand, but in death Jormungand slew his slayer. Then all mankind abandoned the earth, and the earth itself sank down slowly into the ocean. Water swelled over the mountains, rivers gurgled through thick trees, deep currents swept down the valleys. Nothing was to be seen on the earth but a wide flood. The stars fell from the sky. At last smoky clouds drifted upward from the infinite deep, encircling the earth and the water. Fire burst forth from the midst of them. Red flames wrapped the world, roared through the branches of Yggdrasil, and played against heaven itself. The flood swelled, the fire raged. There was now nothing but flood and fire. Then, said Odin in his dream, I see the end of all things. The end is like the beginning, and it will now be forever as if nothing had ever been. But as he spoke, the fire ceased suddenly. The clouds rolled away. A new and brighter sun looked out of the heavens, and he saw the earth rise from the ocean a second time. It rose as slowly as it had sunk. First the waters fell back from the tops of the new hills that rose up fresh and verdant. 
Raindrops like pearls dripped from the freshly budding trees and fell into the sea with a sweet sound. Waterfalls splashed, glittering from the high rocks. Eagles flew over the mountain streams. Earth arose spring-like. Unsown fields bore fruit. There was no evil, and all nature smiled. Then from memory's forest came forth a new race of men who spread over the whole world and who fed on the dew of the dawn. There was also a new city on Asgard's hill, a city of gems. And Odin saw a new hall standing in it, fairer than the sun and roofed with gold. Above all, the wide blue expanded, and into that fair city came Modi and Magni, Thor's two sons, holding Mjolnir between them. Vali and Vidar came, and the deathless Honir. Balder came up from the deep, leading his blind brother Hodder peacefully by the hand. There was no longer any strife between them. Then Odin watched how the Aesir sat on the green plain and talked of many things. Garm is dead, said Hod to Balder, and so are Loki and Jormungand and Fenrir, and the world rejoices. But did our dead brothers rejoice who fell in slaying them? They did, Hod, answered Balder. They gave their lives willingly for the life of the world. And as he listened, Odin felt that this was true, for when he looked upon that beautiful and happy age, it gave him no pain to think that he must die before it came. That, though for many, it was not for him. Soon Honir came up to Hod and Balder with something glittering in his hand, something that he had found in the grass. And as he approached, he said, Behold the golden tablets, my brothers, which in the beginning of time were given to the Aesir's father and were lost in the old world. Then they all looked eagerly at the tablets, and, as they bent over them, their faces became even brighter than before. There is no longer any evil thing, said Odin, not an evil sight, nor an evil sound. But as he spoke, dusky wings rose out of Niflheim, and the dark-spotted serpent, Nidhogg, came flying from the abyss, bearing dead carcass on his wings. Cold death, undying. Then the joy of Odin was drowned in the tears that brimmed his heart, and it was as if the eternal Nor had entered into his soul. "'Is there then no victory over evil?' he cried. "'Is there no death to death?' And with the cry he woke. His dream faded from him. He stood in the palace gates alone with night, and the night was dying. It was twilight again, for the night and the morning drew near to one another. Odin stood a while at the gates of Broadblink, and thought on what he had seen. And then a memory stirred in his mind of what the dead Valor had told him before beloved Balder had died. No man shall waken me again until Loki has burst his chains and Ragnarok has come. And he thought of Loki, fastened to the rock. And then he understood. This misery was what was to come, this destruction of everything so it could be born again from the floods. This end of the world, this Ragnarok, as the Valor had called it, would begin with Loki bursting his shackles. With understanding washing over him, Odin turned away from Broadblink, deep in thought. But he was pulled from his thinking by the sounds of footsteps. Thor, who was mighty, had a look of great worry on his face as he approached Odin. Father, it's Loki. 
goodness. Turns out that actions have consequences that can turn out to be quite destructive. That the end of the world is often a tale that is told in mythologies the world over. But given the cyclical nature of Norse mythology, the rebirth of a new world ruled over by the most beloved of the gods is not something that's echoed everywhere. What did you make of the Twilight of the Gods? With that, Series 4 is concluded. But do not worry, because every week there will be a shorter episode out regarding everything from myths to legends to history, so there will be still something to listen to. And if you have any suggestions or tales that you would like to hear, then drop me a message on TikTok or Instagram, or ping an email to themythspodcast at gmail.com. All that is left for me to say is thank you very much for listening. I hope you will enjoy the short weekly episodes, and you will hear me again at some point next year for Series 5 of what you may have missed. <laughs>